we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1 over this Christmas Eve, and Lord willing, I would list like to preach through Matthew uh, 1 and 2. I'm not starting a serious sermon on Matthew, okay? Don't get nervous about that. Uh, I might even go a little further after that, though, depending on uh, what's going on, but I would like to focus our attention on just what the Scripture says when we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we're lighting candles this morning and singing a certain genre of music in our worship service signals the fact that we have entered into the perennial season that we call Christmas. And during the Christmas season, we reflect upon a particular story, the story of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we tell this story through reading, singing, we set out symbols of the story. You probably already have them around your house. The big question is, when do we get to put up the Christmas tree? Some families are very strict. It has to be after Thanksgiving, not before. Uh, somebody this year said, I just feel like I want something like Christmas to come. And they put it up a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, you know. But the symbols are probably already in your house. You have pictures in your house about Christmas. Sometimes we tell the story through drama, like the traditional children's Christmas pageant. Reen and I used to do a lot of this stuff earlier on in our ministry at Bethany Bible Church in Hendersonville. We, we did several children's programs uh, where the children uh, sometimes represented the Christmas story. And we still talk about the first little Christmas play we did in, in the South at Bethany Bible Church in Hendersonville, having recently moved down from Minnesota because it was the first time we had ever had to make the announcement right before going on stage, will all the shepherds please remove your cowboy boots and, 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 and put away your pocket knives, you know? So we knew we had come sort of into a new culture down here. But there were all the children on the stage, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, gathering around Joseph and Mary in a bundled little figure, in a crudely construction wooden major. Nobody was supposed to know that it was actually a Cabbage Patch doll wrapped up really tight so nobody could see what it was. But there's a lot of memories with that, and you have them too, of telling the story at Christmas. Many people display the scene of the story, a nativity scene with little figures of Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. Sometimes they're life-size figures. If you ever go to the campus right now, you'll see the big nativity scene as you drive onto campus. Sometimes these nativity scenes are done with live people and live animals, if you've ever seen that. That tradition, I understand, goes all the way back to the 13th century in Italy when churches began to recreate the story of Jesus by acting it out. But this season is about a story. As our culture drifts further away from the truth of the Bible, we need to remind one another that this story is the only reason that we have to celebrate. Well, I would like to preach the story over the Christmas season through Matthew's gospel, only of first importance, and this is maybe more of just an introduction this morning, of first importance, there's something that I want to make sure we understand about this story, which might not occur to us. This story that we tell and retell so often in so many ways is not a self-contained story. It's actually part of a bigger story. And not only that, it is not the beginning of the story. It is actually the end of the story. 
It's the climax. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The story, or the beginning of this new story, that is actually the climax of the great story. The story we tell at Christmas is what the entire human story is driving toward. And what you believe and do and love has to be a proper response to this climax of the story. All of human history has come to its conclusion in Jesus, our Emmanuel. And in the province of God who breathed out his divine inspired word, the entire New Testament opens with this climax of the human story. Let's follow along, and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1. Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Baud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Im-Anu-El, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua, Jesus, that's Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you consider a genealogy in the Scripture. If you are faithful with a Bible reading plan every year, for example, you know that First and Second Kings are fascinating reads, but you almost sort of dread that you've got to turn the page to First Chronicles chapter 1, which literally begins with the words Adam, Seth, Enoch, Enosh, Kenan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Jepheth, and it goes on like that for almost nine full chapters. Hundreds of names. And as you read that long list of names from various genealogies, I mean, you, you, you start in with, you know, a, a bit of fervor. I'm going to really concentrate on these. But truth be told, your, your mind tends to wander. And at the end of reading a couple of those long genealogies, you, you, you remember more about what you need to pick up from the grocery store later on that day than you do about what you've actually read in the list. But we should realize that Matthew isn't doing anything out of the ordinary when he begins the whole gospel in this similar way. In fact, maybe you didn't know this, but in the Hebrew Old Testament, it actually ends with Chronicles. Our, our English translation ends with Malachi. It's the last book we read before opening into the New Testament. But in the order of Old Testament books in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles are, are the last books before turning the page to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. I don't know how significant that is, but the rabbis who created the final canonical order of Old Testament books wanted to end with the full story of their people from Adam to their return to captivity or, or, or from captivity. And that story in Chronicles begins with a long genealogy because that's what genealogies do. They tell a story. That's their purpose. And so in Matthew's gospel, it's the same way. The, the familiar part about Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus that we start reading in verse 18 is not the beginning of the story. It's the climax of the story that Matthew tells that really begins at the beginning of Chronicles and ends in Jesus Christ. So what is this story? Well, he begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Literally, this says, the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. It's actually the same formula that we find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that most of the New Testament authors are quoting from. It's the same formula that we find there. Matthew 1 reads, Biblos Genesaos, which is the book or the record of the, gene, of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Genesis 2.4 puts it this way. This is the Biblos Genesaos, the, the book of the Genesis 
of heaven and earth. Genesis 5.1 says, this is the Biblos Genesaos, the book of, of the Genesis of Adam prior to his genealogy. Genesis 9.6 says something nearly identical when it says, this is the Genesis of Noah. I don't think Matthew chooses this word on accident. He doesn't choose it lightly. Because the word Genesis is used in the Scripture in connection with new beginning. And that's what we find at the climax of the story that Matthew is telling, a new beginning with Jesus Christ. So the story of Jesus is at the same time the climax of the one story that's being told, and it creates a new beginning of a new story with all of those who will grab onto Jesus Christ and follow him through eternity. So we have to pay attention to how this particular genealogy works. Now, I don't know if you or your some, someone in your family has ever gotten into discovering, discovering your genealogy as far back as you can go. Uh, every family kind of has their historian that just wants to do this. And today there's no shortage of websites that'll, that'll make you pay a lot of money to try to find out. And some of them will promise they'll connect you all the way back to Adam. Okay, don't believe them when they say that. That's a very rare thing that that could actually happen to get back that far to the biblical account. But tracing your genealogy is usually done so that you can find out if you're related to somebody important. And you hope you're not disappointed in what you find. We rented a house for a while from an older couple with the last name of Witherspoon. And he was the direct descendant of John Witherspoon, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. John Witherspoon was this bright young scholar with a doctorate of divinity from St. Andrews overseas who helped to draft the Articles of the Confederation. And the first day we met the Witherspoons, we happened to learn this information that his ancestor was John Witherspoon who signed the, 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 uh, the Declaration of Independence at the First Continental Congress. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure there wasn't a lot of conversation that happened before we learned this. And I have to tell you, if, if he had been my ancestor, I'm sure you would all know that too in this church. I wouldn't want to hide that information. I have an uncle who is our family historian and he has tried to trace the Stikes line as far back as you can go. It's very difficult because uh, we all came over through Ellis Island, and they actually assigned you different last names. We can't find some of our family because the last name uh, has changed. But as it turns out, uh, my great-great-grandfather was uh, the uh, personal bodyguard of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, who is the last Kaiser or the last Caesar uh, that was ruling over the, um, the, the nation of Germany. And what's interesting about this uh, is that uh, he uh, was bodyguard during the time when Kaiser Wilhelm II had an assassination attempt. And uh, it, was, it failed, but it left, it left a deep gash under his left eye and uh, it might be the reason my great-great-grandfather decided to immigrate to the United States around that time, uh, and also explains maybe why my family never went into personal security uh, after that. But uh, they came over into the United States, and uh, they uh, went on from there, and here I am today from this particular genealogy. But that's the thing. When we look at a genealogy, we're looking at 
how this person we come from was such a big deal, and it adds value to who we are. So if you look back at the genealogies, You've got the book of the Genesis of the heavens and earth, but then you have the book of the Genesis of Adam. Everybody in that list has value because they came from Adam. If you look at the genealogy of Noah, everybody has value because they came from Noah. But the one thing about the genealogy that you see here in Matthew chapter 1 is that the person of value is not at the beginning of the list. It's a genealogy of Jesus Christ, but he's not, at the, he's not at the beginning of the list from whom everybody else comes. He's at the end of the list. And it's because of that name at the end of the list that everybody else in the list finds its value. And that's the way it is for you and me. Our only value our only worth, the only thing that matters to us is that we are rightly related to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Just as this genealogy pushes us toward one person, so everything we do in our lives, everything we think, everything we say, everything we love needs to be for his glory, needs to be for his honor. There's nothing about us that really has any value than that we are rightly related to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so this genealogy from the very beginning begins to tell this story. In fact, if you look at verse 17, we're, we're, we're going to unpack this much more next week, okay? But if you look at verse 17, Matthew is obviously trying to do something with this genealogy. And he says here that... The generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, that's going to need some explaining, uh, because when you take a look at the list and just start counting names, you don't come up with 14, 14, and 14. Do you know that? And actually, we know that this system is a little bit contrived because there are names missing from the list in order to make this three set of what he is calling 14. Now, I don't want to discourage you about this. I'm going to talk about this a lot more uh, next week. But if you think about the fact that there's about 750 years from Abraham to David and only 400 years from David to the Babylonian captivity, you know there's got to be something missing there. So Matthew is presenting a genealogy that he says comes out to three sets of 14 years. Now Matthew can do that because he's not attempting to give us an unbroken biological bloodline in this genealogy. That's not how genealogies in the Old Testament worked anyway. That wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was to tell a story. And he's trying to get us to think in three sets of 14 for some reason. I, I'm going to tell you right away, I'm not really sure what that reason is. But he's obviously doing this for some reason. Some scholars have suggested that by three sets of 14, Matthew has presented us here with six groups of seven leading up to Jesus. And if that's true, in the mind of the Jewish people, they would anticipate a final set of seven, a Sabbath set of sevens, to complete the number, to bring wholeness to the list. 
If that is what Matthew is going for, then perhaps he is saying that the anticipated final generation would come after Jesus and include everyone who embraces him by faith to follow him. For them, the story begins and goes on again and again. Now, we can't say for certain that this scheme of sevens is what's on Matthew's mind, but we do know one thing. In order to make it possible for us to dwell again with him, God descended to us in the person of Jesus Christ at the right time in human history, at the climax of this list. And if he is your savior, then he is your fulfillment also, your goal, your focus, the one you live for, the one who dwells with you. The title of these two chapters as I'm presenting them is Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us. With us, God, literally. In John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And later in chapter 1, he says, the Word became flesh. He became one of us. He had eyes like ours, hands and feet like ours. He had sorrow like ours. He hungered like we do. He didn't just shout down his love from the heavens. He got inside of us and became one of us to represent us. When this prophecy that the one would come who would be our Emmanuel, God actually dwelling with us, when this actually took place, it was in a way that nobody could have anticipated. All throughout human history, God begins dwelling with his people. He leaves because of sin. And the whole human story is God bringing back the dwelling together again with his people. This is why Christ is the climax. Because what we lost in the fall is finally regained again through Jesus Christ. I want to preach this story in our morning worship services at least. Because I don't want this to be just for us another Christmas season with the temptation to go into autopilot or to do what we sometimes do tragically. We, we push Jesus to the side because we're so busy organizing activities to celebrate him. And I want to tell this story because as Matthew tells it, I, I want to see our place in the climax of the story. And I want to tell the story because Jesus should be the goal and focus of all that we do, just like this story. What we say about ourselves here at Gateway is that we are united through the gospel of Christ to know him, love him, and share him. And this morning, I think we know a lot about the Christmas story. We rehearse it every year. A lot of things we know about the details of the story. We've thought through them. We've we reflected on them. And we need to know that story and appreciate it. But we also have a goal of loving him. We need to love the story. We need to love the Christ of the story and worship him together. And then we need to share this story. Uh, this is a time of year when people are actually thinking about things religious. They're thinking about Christmas. Uh, sometimes this is the only time people actually hear good music during the year. 
if, if, they're, if they're hearing uh, Christmas carols. And it's a wonderful opportunity to say, hey, do you know who that is? Do you know this Christ? Knowing him, loving him, and sharing him. We can only do that if he is our focus. And just as Matthew points us to him as the climax, let's make sure that he is the one that is the biggest deal in our life. He's the only thing that really matters. He is our Emmanuel. Father, thank you for...